But today we're wrapping up a, a series called Stressmas. Um, I love Christmas. Um, I mean, I, I love most holidays because it's time off from work and I get an amen. <laughs> everybody likes time off from work. But we really love those time offs from work where everybody comes back together again. Uh, we all don't like that. But in theory, we should like that, truthfully, is that when the entire family gets together, it can bring other emotions besides, you know, holiday cheer and happiness. It can bring anxiety. Uh, you get around your sister-in-law, and she's always a jerk. Am I right? Or is that, I'm just kidding. That's not my family at all, at all. Somebody referred to their in-laws as the in-loves, and I was just like, somebody's kissing up. That's what that is, because there's nobody who feels that way. I mean, I do love my in-laws, but, but Christmas is, is a difficult time for a lot of families, too. We want our kids to have the perfect Christmas. We want them to have a great Christmas. Why do we always equate that with them getting more crap? Why is that in our minds what makes a good Christmas? I don't know. I mean, I think we need to unpack our own motives a little bit, though, sometimes, because if we keep going without self-checking, I think we can find ourselves devel- developing bad patterns and ending up in places socially or with our families that we didn't want to end up in. I mean, you can't be surprised if your kids grew up and become materialistic and all they want from you is more when that's what you've taught them love means. You know what I mean? So I think we're wise to stop every once in a while and consider the choices that we're making, but more importantly, the motives behind the choices that we make. Because Christmas has a whole lot to do with nothing that has anything to do with Jesus. Most people would agree that, and by the way, not to be a bah humbuck, but Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. You guys know that, right? It's just early on the early church decided, and by the way, the first, that, that first 150 years of church did not celebrate Christmas at all. It was only until about 200, I think it was like 230 years later, when some church somewhere came up with a good idea and said, let's start celebrating the day the Messiah showed up. Not just the day that he rose from the dead, And let's get a fat guy in a red suit and candy canes. (laughs) See, I don't, just over the centuries, just extra stuff gets like the trees. And and, and somebody said that that comes from Druids. And and I know that there are Christians, like Greg's family, they're Haitian. And they're like really Haitian Christians. So they don't do Christmas because of some of the pagan stuff that was added to it along the way. And that doesn't bother me me and, and, and my family as much, but... I'm just saying that it got complicated along the way, and, and, and there's, more depre- there's more suicides in the month of December than any other time of the year. My mom's little brother, he was 17, committed suicide in my bedroom on Christmas Day, the month before I turned six. I didn't see anything, but I do remember the gunshot. And I can remember that my mom and dad rushed us out. I, dad just came into the living room and yelled at everybody to get in the van. Um, we had a church van. He was a youth pastor, so he got to bring the church van home. And we sat in the van forever. I just remember being in there forever. And that my dad's dad, my grandpa, showed up. And I remember my grandpa being in the driver's seat, my mom crying in the passenger seat. And I was, sorry. I don't think I've ever cried over that story before. Because I was so young when it happened, you know. Sorry. This is Christmas. Is it happy for everybody? Wow, this is starting off in a whole completely different way than I was expecting. Sorry. Make a, thanks. Making a mental note not to bring that up at the next two services. Wow. 
But then January comes along, and then we've spent way more than the cash that we actually have. And by the way, you shouldn't spend more than you actually have money to pay for. That's unwise, and you're a bad steward of the resources that God gave you. And you're accountable to God for what you do with your money, even with your own family. And to go into debt to give your kids more stuff to sell in next summer's garage sale is stupid. That, that's just crazy. Just Sorry, I'm not saying you're stupid. That, that's just bad financial management. Don't spend more than what you've got. And then January comes along when we get our, our December visa bill. Then that brings up all kinds of fights because then you start finding out. I mean, if you're, if you're married, then you start finding out how much your spouse spent that they didn't tell you. And you went out and spent that much too. Neither one of you communicated. And then, oh, well, now you never communicate. Right? You never tell me, well, why are you always hiding? Why don't we make financial decisions together? It's my responsibility. Why is it your responsibility? Why can't I know about it too? The number one reason for divorce in America is finances. Did you know that? It's Christmas. That's the reason. People get divorced because of Santa. Okay. Not true. Just, just we started Christmas for Jesus, but we don't keep it going for him. We keep it going for family. We keep it going for the presents. We keep it going for the day, the, the, the whole week of half days in the office. That's why we keep it going, and we've, we've gone off track. So this series was about refocusing on what it's about and then deciding what decisions we should make starting from there. We're not trying to keep up with last year's Christmas. We're not trying to keep up with, we're not trying to give them better Christmases than what we had when, when, we, when our parents were able to give us. We're not trying to one-up our parents on Christmas. We want to refocus on the purpose for Christmas, and that's what we've been talking about in, in this series. Isaiah chapter 9, if you've got your Bible. Isaiah chapter 9. The prophet talks, Isaiah and Jeremiah both talk a lot about uh, God's, God's promises, but uh, God's, God's judgment. You can't continue to rebel against God and, and not suffer any consequences of making poor choices. You can't continue to mismanage your finances and not get into financial trouble. You can't continue to be a jerk with somebody and expect it not to ruin that relationship with that person. And you can't keep walking away from the creator of life and not expect to find the death of all the things that the creator of life wanted to give, do, give you. And that's what these prophets say. And in the middle of their pronouncement of the consequences of their rebellion, their disobedience to God and their selfishness towards each other, he gives them a hope that God, while God is disciplining you, while God is taking you as a nation to the woodshed, he's not banishing you for life. God will keep his promises that he made in Genesis chapter 3 that someday he would take away Satan's authority in this world and that he would fix the heart of mankind after mankind had broken it. We're the reason why there's death and war and rape and murder. God didn't invite to invent these things. We invented these things. The Bible says that the entire creation groans under the curse of man's sin in this world. That there was a negative consequence to our world because of our rebellion against the authority of God. It is because of man's sin that there's cancer. It's because of man's sin that there's death. 
because of man's sin that there's all these horrible things. And God is actively at work throughout the history of mankind, showing them little glimpses of himself so that they would pause enough to turn from their disobedience to him and selfishness towards each other to begin following him. And it's that promise that God would show up to fix what we had broken that Isaiah references in chapter 9. Verse 6, he says, For a child is born to us. And he's talking about how God will someday show up in human history to fix, fix us. And David had talked about the Messiah who would show up. David said in, in uh, uh, Psalm chapter 10, in the book of Psalms, it says that Messiah would die, but he would not be dead long enough to begin to rot or decompose. David in Psalm 10 prophesies that Messiah would raise from the dead. In Psalm chapter 22, I believe it's verse 16 through 19, David says that the Messiah would be killed by having his hands and his feet pierced. That's in Psalm 22. That was written 850 years before crucifixion as a form of execution was even invented. Crazy, right? And then in chapter 9, he says that when Messiah shows up, he will show up as a child who is born. That when God shows up, he won't show up as a conquering hero with an army behind him. God would show up as a baby. Keep reading. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. What we talked about two weeks ago. What we need from a counselor is guidance. Help for what's most broken, our heart. And that's what God leads with. When I show up in human history, that's who I'm showing up as, your God. Somebody who can help you find your way back to me. Last week, Pastor Ken talked about the next phrase, a mighty God. The one who is worthy of being obeyed. Somebody who can be trusted enough to obey. Then the next phrase is, he is the everlasting father. Had some Jehovah's Witnesses stop by my door on Friday, and they believe that Jesus was like us, and us can become like Jesus. So in John chapter 1, they have a problem with that passage of Scripture that says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Jehovah's Witness translation of that verse, they add the indefinite particle A in front of God, so that it reads, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Like anybody can be a God, but not the God. So when I brought that up, they said, okay, nice to meet you. And then they, they left. They left. So that's how you get a Jehovah's Witness off your, off your porch. Quote scripture to them. Take them to Isaiah chapter 9, where it says that Jesus is the everlasting father as a baby. The mighty God. In baby form. Eight pounds. I love that part of Talladega Nights. It's probably a little bit blasphemous to say. But he likes the eight pound baby Jesus. Right? And the diaper Jesus. That's the one. That's the one he likes. And that's the one everybody likes. Because they think he's the safe one. But it's why he came. That should make us uncomfortable. He's the everlasting father. And that's the next phrase. He's wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about today. Do you know that God is only referred to as Father less than 15 times in the Hebrew Scriptures? Less than 15 times God is referred to as Father. 
But in the New Testament, in the Greek scriptures, God is referred to as Father 256 times. What's the difference? What's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Why were they, even though there's so many more books, smaller books, sections of the Old Testament than there is of the New Testament, so there's so many more than the Old. I, I believe it's 12 more than there is of, what, what, is, what would that be? That would be uh, 50% more books in the Old Testament than the New Testament. They feel so uncomfortable referring to him as a father. But in the New Testament, he's almost always referred to as our father. Jesus, the model prayer is the our father. The people in the Old Testament would not have felt comfortable praying that prayer at all. Why? What changed? What happened? That he goes from distant out here, can't approach him. I mean, even the Holy of Holies, the, the presence of God, where the Ark of the Covenant was. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what I'm talking about. If you even looked at the presence of God, you melted like wax. You've seen the movie. If you haven't, you need Jesus. That, that's a good movie. My kids watch it, and they like, the special effects is cheesy. But back when I was a teenager, special effects were amazing. The dude's face melted. How did they do that? Right? I remember having nightmares over that scene, too. Anybody else? No, just me? All right. Liars. There's a commandment about that one, by the way. But there was a seven-inch thick curtain that separated the presence of God from regular people. Here's what changed. Ephesians chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, go there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. Adopt us. That's a foreign phrase to the Hebrew scripture. God adopting us into his own family by bringing us to himself through who? Jesus. This is what he, why did he do this? Because it's what he wanted to do. Why? It gave him great pleasure. I've got a lot of friends who've adopted kids. And, and honestly, I almost feel like it's too late now because our oldest two, by the time we would get through the adoption, they would be out of the house. And like we, we, we kind of wish that we had done it sooner. And, and our kids always talk to us about adopting. Why don't We should adopt. We should adopt. We should adopt. And we should adopt. And I think you should at least consider adopting, fostering to adopt, possibly. I I think more of us should do that, truthfully. I, I think that the fostering to adopt, the whole adoption idea, I think is a beautiful picture of our relationship with God. And I think you and your family could be a beautiful example of what it looks like for us to be in relationship with God, for us to be orphans on our own, separated from the creator of life. And then he goes out of his way to find us in the same way that an orphan is passive and the process of a family deciding whether or not they want to adopt. That's not the kid's choice. That's the family's choice. When the family, the father, the mother, choose to adopt a child, it's a beautiful picture. And they do it because they want to. It brings them pleasure. So for the same reason a family would adopt an orphan, God goes, you know what? That's, that's me. It brings me great pleasure to bring you into my family too. To give you something you haven't earned, you don't deserve, by rights don't belong to you. I choose to give you those rights. And it's my pleasure to do so. That's not the idea that we have of God. That God is aggressively seeking to adopt people who are far from him. I talked to a guy last night who said, 
but I've done way more bad things than anybody else in my family. He's still separated from God. And it's by his choice. His little orphan Annie going, I don't deserve Daddy Warbucks. I know. And that's kind of the point. Right? He's missing the point. It pleases God. Not because... You didn't earn this. That's not why you get it. It's because he absolutely adores you, no matter how sinful, no matter how rotten you are on the inside. It pleases him to rescue spiritual street kids. So the more street you are spiritually, I think the more pleasure it would bring him to pull you off the street. Metaphorically, you guys get, right? I didn't lose you on that one. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness that he did two things. Purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sin. That's what changed. Jesus hadn't shed his blood on the cross yet. There was still a distance between God and man. They were looking forward to everybody who lived in the Old Testament, everybody who lived before Jesus, who by faith was made right with God, was made faith, was made right with God by faith that someday God would reconcile mankind to himself through self-sacrifice, through offering himself. In fact, it was Abraham who said to his son Isaac, and there are Jewish people in our church, so they'll know this story really well, <clears throat> his only son Isaac, and when God, you know, when he was going to offer his son as a sacrifice, God stopped him and said, because you've not withheld your son from me, I will not withhold any good thing from you. And he looked up and he saw the ram in the thicket and he off, the ram took the place of his son. And then Abraham said to his son, on this mountain, God will provide himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And it is not a coincidence of history. Or maybe it is. I just say it's not a coincidence that it was actually on that same mountain that the Romans crucified Jesus. Almost like there really is a God, right? <laughs> but that's what changed. I want to camp for a second on this everlasting part. Psalm chapter 106 says this. Psalm 106 verse 48. Praise the Lord, the God of the God of Israel who lives from everlasting to everlasting. That's not just some random poetic phrase. What he's saying is God who existed in everlasting that way and everlasting that way. There's, you don't get to, like, I have a starting point, right? God doesn't have a starting point. If that trips you up, how do we get here? All right? I mean, everybody knows that the, the universe is winding down and it's spreading out. So logic says that you go back it, it goes back to a critical point where it all started from some place and what existed before that. Something had to always be here. What was that something that created all the order, structure, the laws of... Where did these laws of the universe come from? Random chaos? Where do you see random chaos creating order anywhere else in the entire world? It's not logical. The most logical thing, as improbable as you might feel it is, is that there is an intelligent designer who started everything. That's what we see in nature. You just don't want to believe it. Your bias, our biases, 
often get in the way of this. But scripture says from everlasting to everlasting, he's always there. How is that possible? Well, we're stuck in time, so that just blows our mind. But Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 says that the high and lofty one lives in eternity. He doesn't live in time. He lives in eternity. It's kind of like when God created time as a timeline, there's a starting point. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Whatever that looked like, it was that. And then that timeline goes like this. But God isn't actually way down here on that line, right? He's out of, he's in eternity, Isaiah 57 says. So he sits outside of time and he can see that side where it started all the way out. He can see the whole line because he's out here. He's not on the line. Are you with me? Does this make sense to you? That's how God knows the past, the present, and the future. He can see the whole thing at one time. That's, that's how I picture it. That, that makes sense to me. It's, it's, ration, it's a rational explanation for what the Bible has to say about part of the character and attributes of God. He lives outside of time and can see the whole thing. And the neat thing is that he invites me to go from this line to out here too. Like, I don't have to have a starting dot and an ending dot. In fact, the scripture says that God has placed the idea of eternity into the heart of all men. Scripture says that. No matter where you go, the thought of living beyond death is there. God puts that, that, that God gave us, that, that's in scripture. And we see it in all different cultures throughout all time. Civilized and uncivilized. The idea of eternity is always there. God created mankind with, with that instinct. And he invites us into it. In John chapter 14, we're not going to take the time to look at it. But in John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, When I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and bring you to it. And he says, listen, if... If this weren't true, then I wouldn't have told you that I was going to come back and, and take you to it. I, I'm, the cool thing is, he says, I've got a place for you with my father. Where he's at, outside of time, in eternity, I'm preparing a place for you there. Jesus invites us into the reality as God sees it. But not everybody will get it. There's a song that we sing here at Grace Church that I've already talked about with Greg to change because I don't believe that that one phrase is, is biblical. He forgives everyone, 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 everyone. He forgives everyone. He redeems everyone, everyone, everyone. Biblically, he redeems anyone. But he doesn't redeem everyone. But he will redeem anyone. And he does forgive anyone but he doesn't forgive everyone Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 25 we are going to take the time to look at that one but if you would go to Matthew chapter 25 and in Matthew chapter 25 verse 31 Jesus said this but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit upon his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll place the sheep at his right hand and the goats on his left. And it's not that people are sheep and goats, but he said it's like that. Like a shepherd separates sheep from goats 
on judgment day, God will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep on his right hand, the goats on the left hand. Which one are you? I have no idea. Let's keep reading. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, they're a goat. I know who my husband is. Um, then the king will say to those on his right, the goat, come, or excuse me, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Wait, 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 wait. When did he start preparing a place for them? When he said, let there be light. He started planning for the day I would show up on the sheep side. Awesome. That I was on his mind. Right? David talks about God planning our existence before he laid the foundations of the earth. There's nothing about you that's an accident. I know your parents might have called you that, but God didn't. Right? You might have been a surprise to them, but you weren't a surprise to him. He knew this moment would come, that you would have an opportunity today. Maybe in addition to other opportunities you've had in the past. To know how much he loves you. Have an opportunity to go from goat to sheep. To go from orphan to adoption. That's the chance you've got. Because while he's the creator of everyone. He's only the father of some. The sheep. Go down to verse 41. Then the king will turn to those on his left. Those were the what? The goats. And he'll say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for who? Who was hell created for? Devil and his demons. God did, did, didn't even create hell for us. When he created mankind, it was so that we would live in relationship with him forever. But the only consequence of walking away from the creator of life is what? The consequence of turning off light is what? Dark. The consequence of walking away from the creator of life is what? The consequence of walking away from the creator of eternal life is eternal death. Separation from God in hell. That's the consequence. Not his choice. C.S. Lewis, he's famous, right? He said there are only two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, fine, your will be done. You don't have to be adopted. You don't have to turn from your selfishness, your pride, your disobedience to God, and your selfishness towards others. You can keep living as though you're the only thing that matters. You can never admit that you've sinned against a holy and righteous God. That is your choice. But there are consequences for the choices that we make. Always there are consequences. So who gets to be included? Who gets to be adopted? Who gets to go from goat to sheep? Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, here's what the Bible says about going from goat to sheep. Orphan to adoption. Romans chapter 3 verse 21. But now God has shown us the way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. You know the law, the Ten Commandments, right? Don't make anything else more important than me. Don't pray to anybody else but me. Don't, don't, don't take my name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. Don't steal. Right? Don't commit adultery. 
Jesus said, if you've lusted, though, you're guilty of that one. Because God judges us based on the condition of our heart. So we've committed adultery in our heart. He says, don't kill. We think we're good with that one. But then Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if you've hated somebody, you're guilty of murdering your heart because God judges us based on the attitude of our heart. So we don't even pass that one, right? Don't lie and don't wish that somebody else's stuff was your stuff. That's the Ten Commandments. And who here has kept those? Don't raise your hand because then you're breaking number nine. Then Paul says that if you're guilty of breaking one, you're guilty of breaking all of them because it was the same God who wrote all ten. So you broke one, fine. You've still transgressed the same author of the other nine. So if you've rebelled against one, you're, it doesn't matter. You're still not innocent. And you're guilty. And if God is good, he won't wink away guilty people and act like it's no big deal. What good judge would ever do that? So if it's up to keeping the law, keeping the rules, according to the Bible, I'm hosed. According to my own conscience, I'm hosed. Some of us, honestly, we think that if we're good enough, we'll make it to heaven. What's good enough? What? 50%? 51%? What, it's going to be good enough and God isn't going to tell us what that percentage is? Then God ain't good. What teacher would give a test and not tell us what, how, how, how to pass it? Right? Can you imagine God doing that? When we stand before him, innocent or guilty? How many of them do you have to break before you have to say I'm guilty? Well, one. So if you had to be good enough to make it to heaven, guess who would make it? Everybody in here is a goat. We're all born goats. Right? It's true. We're born goats. Look at this. Verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone is sinned. We all fall short of God's standard. What was God's standard? Commandments. How many of us fall short of that? Raise your hand. <laughs> if your hand isn't raised, I refer you again to number nine. For God presented Jesus as the sacrificial payment for our sin. People are made right with God. When they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Galatians chapter 2 echoes this sentiment of not, not being able to be good enough in verse 16 when it says, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. So according to the Bible, can you be made right with God by obeying the rules? According to the Bible. Now listen, this goes against what some of our churches taught us our whole lives. That's why this matters. Most Christian denominations will say that if you're good enough, you make the cut. The only problem is that it's the exact opposite of what the Bible actually says. So why do they say it? I don't know. I don't know. But here's what the Bible says. You have to find it. And we believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Jesus, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the rules. According to the Bible, no one gets right with God by obeying the rules. So if I'm a goat and I keep all the rules, which you can't, 
But if you try to keep most of them, that doesn't make me a sheep. Then how do I go from goat to sheep? How do I go from orphan to adoption? We're going to go back to Romans for this. Romans chapter 10. Here's what it looks like. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, are you willing to confess and make Jesus Lord of you? We say yes, but what are the consequences of that choice? You see what I'm saying? There's a lot of us who know that he is, but won't make him that because we're uncomfortable with the changes that might happen. It's true. Right? I've had some very transparent and honest people tell me that. It's not ready. The scary thing for me is the verse where Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless my father draws them. You know how you can be sitting in a sermon and not get anything from it? And then there's times where you're sitting in a sermon, like you're like, I need to do something about this. That'll happen in the same sermon. No doubt there's somebody here in a crowd this size who's thinking, I need to go from goat to sheep. And there's somebody else who's like, holy cow, what time is this over? And it's the exact same. <laughs> you laugh because I was like, crap, I'm busted. That's me. I'm, I'm. You're like playing on your phone. You're like, what, what, what? I'm not playing on my what? Candy, candy Crush? What? John 4, 19, Candy Crush. Verse. I, I don't know. That was weird. And it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my sermon. It has everything to do with whether or not God's giving you the opportunity now. Because adoption's the daddy's choice. You just get to choose whether or not you want to go into the family. But he invites. He initiates. You get to respond. Here's what it looks like. If you were willing to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. It's by confessing with your mouth that you're saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to anyone, to all, who do what? That's who he forgives. That's who he saves. That's who he adopts. That's who he redeems. He's willing to forgive, to redeem, to rescue, to save anyone. Everyone who calls. Everyone who calls on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's who's in. When you get to the end of doing it all about you, and you're ready to bring yourself from the streets into his home, but coming into the home, there's a lot of benefits, right? But now there's also an authority that you didn't have before. But when you're ready, when he gives you the opportunity, when you're drawn, your response is to call, God, forgive me. Make me yours. I'm willing. I want you to be my Lord. As much as you want me in your family. I want to be yours. That's your choice. That's who's in. God becomes our father. Last verse we're going to look up is in 2 Corinthians. 
where he says in verse 17 that if you come out from the non-believers, if you move from goat to sheep and separate yourself from goats, don't touch the filthy things that used to be part of who you were. I will become, I will welcome you, verse 18. I will be your father, you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The idea of God being a father might not evoke positive emotions in your heart because of a dysfunctional relationship with a father. So the picture I want you to have in your mind where God wants to be your father is from Luke chapter 15. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, you want to know what it's like between God and us? It's like a dad who had two sons. And one son flips him off, says, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. And the dad actually accommodates him and liquidates one-third of his assets and gives it to his son in cash. And the son goes into a far country and wastes all of it on hookers and parties, according to the older brother later on. And then when he gets to himself and finds himself in a gutter, he's homeless. He says to himself, even employees of my dad are treated better than this. And while I'm not worthy to ever be his son again, maybe he'll at least give me a minimum wage job. So he goes back knowing he doesn't deserve anything. And when the father sees him from a long way off, the Bible says the father runs to the son, runs to him, throws his arms around, and the son starts the speech that he had prepared. Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but if you will just, he doesn't even get to say, give me a job. Because the dad calls back to the house, bring him a robe, kill the fatted calf for the party, and bring shoes for his feet. That's important. I love that part because servants weren't allowed to wear shoes in the home. They had to take them off. Only family members could wear shoes in the house. And he put the son right back where he belonged as if it had never happened. That's our father. The one who will act as if all the crap in your past, all the addictions that you struggle with now, he'll act as though it never happened. That's the kind of father you ain't never had. But that's the kind of father he wants to be. The one who, when you feel like a broken reed, will not break. The one who, like, and this is in uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. A bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoking flax, that's the wick of a candle, where it's just got the red ember left. The flame's already gone out, but it's still producing smoke because there's a little bit of something, something there. He won't go, God won't. When you're at the end of your rope, he gives you more rope. When you feel like you've let go, he puts a trampoline on the bottom so you bounce. Right? That's our father. That's who he's willing to be to you. But he's not going to force himself on you at your call. I've got two parting thoughts. And that's this. is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 through 5. Since there is so much left, we have a starting point, but we don't have an ending point. But where we spend eternity is different. Some of us will spend eternity separated from God in hell. And I know that that's uncomfortable. And it's not politically correct to talk about, but that doesn't mean it's any less true. Or some of us will spend eternity with God in heaven. And the difference is not good people and bad people, because according to the Bible, we're all, we're all guilty people. The difference is adoption or orphan. That's the difference. The difference is sheep or goat. We're all born goats. We're all born orphans, right? The difference is Jesus. So it's not that good people go to heaven. Adopted people go to heaven. Are you with me? And he is willing to adopt anyone who will call. He says, how those of us who spend eternity in heaven, spend eternity in heaven will be different. 
in that verse in 1 Corinthians 3, it says that there's no foundation laid other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus talked about this. He said, those who hear these teachings and receive them are like those who build their house on a rock. But those who hear these teachings of mine and ignore them are building their own house on sand and it will fall. So that rock that's laid, which is Jesus, the gospel, the good news that God rescues from sin and is willing to adopt anybody who calls on him. He says, we're building our lives on that foundation. Those of us who've gone from goat to sheep, you've got the right foundation. So be careful how you build your life on that foundation now. Because you're building with one of six different types of material. Gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And he says, on judgment day, believers will have a different kind of judgment than those who are not. Those who are not believers will be asked, are you innocent or guilty? Guilty. What did you do with my son? I rejected him. Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. Those who are his, the Bible says that the lives that we lived will be tried by fire. And our works will be burnt. And we will enter eternity with what's left over after God's judgment on the house we built with the life that we had. So be careful how you build. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hand, stubble. Do gold, silver, and precious stones burn? Yes or no? Are they combustible? No. Is wood, hay, and stubble? Yes. And he says... Some of us will have plenty left over after our lives have been judged. And he says, and that is your reward for eternity. And some of us will have built our entire lives on wood, hay, and stubble. We live selfishly. And he says, and after that fire, read it, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Our entire lives will be burnt up. And he says, but we will be saved so as by fire. Or by the hair of our chinny chin chin. And the only way that we made is because we had what? The right foundation. How we spend eternity. Where we spend eternity as followers of Jesus is the exact same. Where we spend eternity. How we spend eternity is completely different. I don't want to spend eternity empty-handed. I don't want my house tried by fire and nothing left but the foundation. You know what I mean? I want wheelbarrows. I'm saying? Talk about the 80 slow clap. I want that. That sounds bad, but I think it's, it sounds funny too. Last thing is this, and we don't have time to look it up. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 20. It says, if you've been reconciled by God, you've been reconciled by God to reconcile others to God. You and I have people in our lives that we absolutely love, adore, and care for who really are going to spend eternity separated from God. And we don't think about that very often because it's a depressing thought, so we push it out of our mind. But God is everlasting, and he created us in his image, and we are now everlasting. We're not from everlasting to everlasting, but we are from here to everlasting. Where is different, but the fact that we will exist either in the presence of God or separated from God is different. And the truth is, for some of our friends, we really are the only sheep they know. All their other friends are goats. The truth is, we were goats too, so it's not like we're better than them. But we know how to be reconciled to God. God helped me on that day when God separates the nations into goat and sheep. And a friend I've had for 15 years is on the goat side and looks over at me on the sheep side and says, you were a sheep. No freaking way you're a sheep. 
I lived next to you for 20 years. And you didn't say a single freaking thing to me. God, that would be the worst thing I hear on Judgment Day. Is a friend that I love see me on the other side of the aisle and ask, why in the world did you not tell me this would happen to me? And that moves me. Not to move off of Seaver Street. Not to ever leave New England. Ever. I have too many friends in Stoughton on the wrong side of the aisle still who haven't even had a chance to be adopted yet. That is worth living and dying for. So I want to live my life different. And all of that, going from goat to sheep, going from orphan to adoption, started on Christmas. Christmas makes me grateful for everything I already have and don't deserve. I don't need more. I'm okay. I need to give more. I need to do more. I need to go farther. I ain't done. Christmas is a reminder that my life has meaning. There's something beyond me, worth leveraging all of me for. And you too. Pray. God, thank you for showing up to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. For those in here, God, right now, who've been working their butt off to be accepted by you, hoping that someday they would meet some kind of vague test of goodness versus badness. I pray that you've cleared away some of that religious fog that we've inherited from our past and we would recognize from your word, the Bible, that that path keeps us separated from you. That's why we need Jesus. You showed up in human history. You lived the innocent life that we couldn't live and you paid the debt that, we, that would have crushed us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for raising from the dead proving that you were done paying for them. Thank you for giving me a new shot at life, giving me a new foundation, adopting me into your family and moving me from goat to sheep. If in this metaphor you'd be on the goat side, you don't have to stay there. Are you willing to call on Jesus as Lord, yes or no? If you are, tell him, Jesus, I'm willing to make you my Lord. I'll follow you. I'll give you my life because you gave me yours. I believe. Help my unbelief. Take away my sin. Adopt me. Amen. Make that your prayer. You've already gone to that place, but you've become distracted. You've no longer separated your choices, your lifestyle from those around you. God adopted you into his family so that you wouldn't waste your life like others. And maybe you find that you have. This would be a really cool opportunity to reset your compass. God, help me to live with everlasting in mind. Help me to consider that my friends who are distant from you will be distant from you for everlasting. And let that drive the decisions I make. Not how popular I am, but I'm not. Let your will be done in us so that your will can be done through us. And we pray this in your name, Jesus, and say,